there are many um, relationships, bonds that we create in this life that are uh, special to us. Uh, you might think of uh, someone that you went through a particular season of suffering or trial through together that you have built a bond that uh, is unique to, to you and that person or a group of people. Maybe uh, you, you had a, a good experience with uh, someone like your college roommates and you still have a bond with them to this day or friends that you, you grew up with and, and, and did life together even as a child that you still have a unique bond today because of the unique circumstances that you face. When we think about uh, our relationships and those unique bonds that we have, we, we probably think of family uh, that family is a, is a special bond in, in our lives, and, and maybe more so for others uh, than for some, but th- our lives are full of unique bonds with other people. God created us to be in community, and so there are those that we uh, share life with or have shared life with that we will always have a unique bond with. Um, when we think about, though, the bond that we share together today in Christ as the church, this joyous bond of Christian fellowship, if you will, the bond that we share together in Christ far surpasses all other worldly bonds. Even the, the, the bonds of blood with our, with our very family uh, in, in a lot of ways, pales in comparison to the bond that we share together this morning as the body of Christ. What unites us today, and the reason that we gather in this place week in and week out, is not because we all have a similar uh, fandom when it comes to NFL teams. Uh, it's not because we have similar uh, taste in music or we like the same restaurants. What bonds us together today, what unites us together today in this place and every day when we gather here is the gospel, that we have been changed by the power of the cross, that Christ has intervened on our behalf and we will never be the same. And so we continue to gather together as the body of Christ in this local covenant community Uh, Until the Lord returns, faithfully living out the life that he has called us to in this bond of the gospel that surpasses all other worldly bonds. Uh, We gather here today with different backgrounds, different races, different uh, even ideas of how uh, life functions in a lot of ways. But what unites us here today is the gospel. uh, And this is a bond that we share as the church As we continue through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, I think we're going to sense, if you haven't already, the bond that Paul and Silas and Timothy have with this church in Thessalonica and the bond that they have together corporately as a church. And so I think we're going to sense the weight of that as we read through this passage. And so if you will, follow along with me beginning there in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It says there, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. 
Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be lifted or left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers... In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help in these moments. Lord, would you help us to listen well? Would you help us to understand rightly uh, the word that is before us today? God, would you move in our midst? We, we trust in the power of your word. Proclaim, Lord, help us in these moments in spite of our, our weaknesses, in spite of our uh, insufficiencies, Lord, that you would allow your word to, uh, to speak in this place. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. As we consider this bond that we share as Christ's church, what does this bond look like? How does it play out in the life of the church? Again, we've already touched on a lot of this in just the first two sermons of this series. But I want us to, to look into the life of the church in Thessalonica and their relationship with Paul and Silas and Timothy and see a glimpse of what the, the bond that we share as the body of Christ looks like. So three things that we're going to see here today. First, they had a Christ-centered affection that united them. We get the sense of this right away in the first few words that Paul says there. Verse 17, since we were torn away from you. If you remember back to Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul and Silas and and Timothy had to leave very abruptly from them because of the persecution that uh, had arisen there. And ever since that moment, he has longed to return to them. And you hear the weight of this desire in his words in the second part there of verse 17. We endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Just those words alone, you can feel his, his desire to see them again. And if that's not enough, he, he, he speaks of himself. I, Paul, again and again have this desire to come to you. This is strong language, very personal. You, you can sense that Paul genuinely cares for them and genuinely wants to return uh, to see them. 
This language runs throughout the passage here. You you see it again at the end of verse 6. We long to see you. You see it there in verse 10, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face. And then there at the end of verse 11, it says that the Lord may direct our way to you. His prayer there in verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, connects directly back to the end of verse 18, where he gives the reason why he can't come to them. Look at the end of verse 18. It says, Satan hindered us. This word hindered here is really helpful for us. This is a word that means to thwart. And it it, it is a military practice of making slits in a road so that an opposing army, a pursuing enemy, cannot advance any further. Maybe they they drop trees or do whatever they can to keep the, the enemy from pursuing them. That's the type of language that that word, they're hindered, speaks of. It's, a, it's military language. And so in his prayer... Later in verse 11 where he says, direct our way to you, he is saying literally there, Lord, clear the way. The enemy has made an obstacle for us. Lord, would you make the way clear? And so you have this picture of of an opposing army making the way difficult and praying that the Lord would clear the way to make it clear. But again, notice there at the end of verse 18, what is it or who is it that has hindered them? Paul makes it very clear it was Satan. Satan has directly attacked him as God's apostle and hindered him from doing this task of going to the church in Thessalonica. Earlier in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 Paul famously says this, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's something spiritual that is hindering him from going to the church in Thessalonica. Now, Paul in his writings never really gives us an extensive, systematic discussion on who Satan is. And here we can really only speculate what it is in particular that is hindering him. Maybe it's Jewish opposition. Uh, Maybe it's the legal situation that arose there in Acts chapter 17 in regards to Jason. Uh, Maybe it's this bodily ailment that Paul mentions from time to time. We don't know with much certainty. But what we do know is that Satan looks to tempt to deceive and work against the health and well-being of Christ's church. That he has directly attacked here to prevent the advancement of the church. Now, how do we respond to this? Just for a moment. The fact that Satan is at work and, and, and is hindering the work. How do we respond to that? I think we need to guard ourselves from becoming too aware of Satan's working in this world and giving him too much credit. We see this a lot in the charismatic movement where there's an overemphasis on the enemy's working. That we understand that Satan is working, but our response to that is, is threefold. First, we do not respond in fear. Satan's working does not cause us as the church, as Christ's people, to, to live in fear of him. Also, we we rest in the promises of God that 
Christ will build his church. And though Satan hindered Paul in his movement, what do we see happen here in the passage? Timothy is able to go. Timothy is able to give this report. And so Timothy goes out of this affection that Paul has for the church in Thessalonica. And we see in this that there is just this overwhelming desire that brothers and sisters in Christ have to be together. No matter what, Paul says, even if I cannot be there, I, would, I, I don't mind being left behind in Athens alone so that Timothy can go. This desire to connect, to be in community, to get a report of how things are going on in the church in Thessalonica, even though Satan was hindering the work to some degree. You know, I wonder if, if we saw some of this during the pandemic, and I don't want to make any type of political statement here, so please hear what I'm saying, but considering how Satan might hinder Christ's church from being the church and the attempts that he makes in our day, did we get a glimpse of that during the pandemic where churches were forced to close in places like California and Government officials were putting papers on the doors of churches saying you cannot meet here. Pastors in Canada being arrested for their faithfulness to shepherd the flock. To what degree do we see Satan hindering the church there? That's a discussion for another day. But here's what I want to highlight. In the midst of all of that, I believe we saw... This, this, this desire to close down the church from the outside world, even just for a moment. And what did healthy churches do? They kept meeting. Because they had no other choice. First of all, Christ commands us as his church to gather. What we are doing today and every week is so important to the life and health individually, but corporately as a church. But secondly, you can't keep us apart That's the weight of what Paul is talking about here. The bond that we share in Christ in the gospel is something that brings us together week in and week out to be about the same thing. Jesus and what he has done in our lives. And so we consider ourselves this morning and do we have this type of affection that Paul had for the church? That that we're even... Obstacles will not keep us from being together. My prayer is that we as a church would have this type of Christ-centered affection for one another. That we would understand the importance of what we have and share together as the church. You know, it's hard, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in a moment. In the American church, I think sometimes for us to really appreciate what we have together as the body of Christ. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we, we really haven't faced much persecution in our day. So where you see the persecuted church in parts of our world today, when all they have is each other, there's this sense of affection and desire that they have that sometimes maybe we lack in our American context. I don't think it's impossible, though, for us to have that type of affection. We should, and my prayer is, is that we would see what's happening here in the life of the church of Thessalonica and their relationship with Paul, and that we would be reminded today of the importance of what we have here together in the bond of the gospel. 
The second thing that we see here in in regards to this bond of joy-filled Christian fellowship is that they had a faith-fueled longing to grow together in the gospel. What is it that drives Paul to see them? Why is he longing to see them? Well, we've touched on it uh, for just a moment here, but he gives us three specific things here in the passage of uh, reasons of why he wants to come to them. And so you can see them here in the text. The first one is what he says there in verse 19 and verse 20, that they are his, his glory, his joy, his hope, his crown of boasting. Paul's attempt to return to them was motivated not out of any type of obligation, but out of an affectionate belief that these believers in Thessalonica were his hope and his joy and his crown of boasting. Now, now what does that mean? Those three words there in particular together, hope, joy, and then the last phrase, crown of boasting. Well, let's unpack that for a moment. What, what do we see here? First, the word hope. Uh, This word hope is important in Paul's writings. It's used some 36 times in Paul's letters. It is a key feature to his theology. And usually when we think of hope, uh, we, we think of hope speaking to the believer's hope in God or in Christ and what God will do. And we, we saw this type of hope earlier in chapter 1, verse 3, when he speaks of the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But here the hope that he speaks of in verse 19 is, is to the evidence or the proof of the faithful manner in which Paul has carried out his calling as a minister of the gospel. Remember last week where he talked about there he was approved by God. He was entrusted with the gospel. And so the church in Thessalonica is evidence that he's carried out his ministry faithfully. He speaks of this to the church in Corinth when he says to them that you are the seal of my apostleship. They are the proof that he will give to his returning Savior when he faithfully, that he has faithfully fulfilled the task that God has appointed him to do. We see the same idea in the word joy. Joy is also an important word in Paul's theology where it's used some 21 times in his letter. And this idea of joy and crown of boasting is something that he speaks of to the church in Philippi. Uh, in, in, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he, he says to them that they are his joy and crown, that same type of language. Earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And so with great joy, Paul anticipates the coming of Christ to present to his master this, this crown. Let's consider that last uh, part there, the crown of boasting, because it helps illuminate what Paul is talking about here. This crown that he's speaking of here is not the crown that you would place on a royal's head. Rather, it is the crown that, that the victor, the, the athlete, will receive. Uh, you think about the, the crown, uh, that it, the wreath that's made of the leaves. They place it on the victor's head. And just as the victor would boast in his victory wreath, Paul boast in the church in Thessalonica. Now, when we think of his boasting, though, we should not see it as some type of vain pride that Paul has. He's not saying, look what I did. But rather, as one commentator put it, he said, vindicating uh, not of exaltation for the work in Thessalonica that God brought about through him. This was what God did through him. 
And so Paul is boasting in what God has done, not in any type of personal accomplishment. But notice that all of this rests in what it says there at the end, in, at the end of verse 19, before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. Paul has the coming of Christ on his mind. This word coming refers to a king who is returning, and it's used by Paul and others to speak of the future coming of Christ. And so Paul here has an eternal perspective as he considers this church. Let's let's move on then to see what's the second reason. So the first reason he gives here for coming to them is that they are his his crown of boasting. But the second reason he gives for his coming was found there in verse 5, where he mentions this fear that he had that somehow the tempter had tempted them and that his labor was in vain. He's already affirmed that his labor was not in vain. Chapter 2, verse 1. He has already received the testimony of Timothy. And he knows that his labor was not in vain. But part of his motivation in sending Timothy was to check on him. To make sure that they were steadfast in the faith and and that Satan had not tempted them or distracted them. And so it says there in verse 5, For this reason I sent Timothy to learn about you. Notice again, we see the tempter mentioned here. We see earlier his name, Satan, but here Paul calls him the tempter in verse 5. Again, Paul is very aware of the spiritual warfare that is taking place in this particular city and throughout the world. And he is on guard. He's mindful of this. And so we are reminded in our day of The fact that Satan is still at work seeking to destroy the church in ways that he can. And we see week after week stories of pastors falling away from the faith because of immorality. Divisions in the church over trivial things. We too must be on guard as Paul was. Notice the third reason though that he gives for coming to them. And that was to encourage them in the faith. He wants to encourage them in the faith. We see this in verse 2 where he talks about coming to establish and exhort them in their faith. We see this in verse 10 where he says he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. And then finally in verses 12 and 13 he wants to increase, see that they would increase and abound in love. And then also that they would establish their hearts blameless in Holiness. Let's consider these three things just for a moment here. First, verse 2, to establish and exhort them in the faith. He wants them to grow in the things of God, in the gospel that has taken hold of them. So that in the midst of affliction, they will continue to abide in Christ, being rooted and built up, established in the faith. He says there in verse 10, to supply what is lacking in their faith. This is really more of a general sense of concern for them. Uh, Some commentators and others have tried to identify what it is that they were lacking in. I don't think this is necessarily helpful because Paul doesn't tell us what it is. Does Paul maybe have something in mind that they're lacking in? Sure. But really here, this is more of a general concern for them. What he says here that he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith is that they need to simply continue to grow in the faith as all of us do. 
All of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian or how old we are, are continually looking to become more and more like Jesus. And so what he talks about there, to supply what is lacking in your faith, is in no way to negate all of the good stuff he's highlighted already. Chapter 1, imitators of the Lord, much affliction with great joy. They've set aside idols, waiting for the Son. All of these things are true for them, but there are still things that they must work on. Again, we are always growing in the faith. Finally, there in verses 12 and 13, he wants them to increase in love and holiness. This is really a theme here of these first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, love and holiness. We touched on this last week. They went to the church in Thessalonica because of their compassion, their love for them, and what was the manner in which they came to them? They were walking in holiness. Love and compassion for one another. And even there he says in verse 12, for all, for all people. And our holiness in the midst of this world are marks of the Christian life. And they are essential to our witness. We are to be compassionate, loving people who walk in holiness in this world. And in the back of his mind in all of this, look what he says at the end of verse 13. At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He has eternity on his mind. And so there is a desire in Paul to grow in Christ alongside the church in Thessalonica, but also to leave a gospel legacy behind. Um, Adoniram Judson is one of my heroes in the faith. He was a missionary to uh, the country of Burma, which is now Myanmar, in the 1800s. Just an incredible story. If you're looking for a, a biography to read, I would encourage you to go and read one about Adoniram Judson. But Judson goes to Burma in a time where missions work in that type of, of going was very new. And so he gets on a boat, he travels to India, he wants to stay in India, God closes the door, so he goes to Burma. He loses two wives... They both die. He loses children there who die. He spends time in prison. He gets to a point where he is so emotionally distraught that he he begins to dig his own grave in the jungle and lay in it. It is hard work that Judson does. But in the midst of all of that, he was faithful to the task that God had called him to. Not only preaching the gospel to the people of Burma, but one of Judson's greatest legacies to this day is the translation that he wrote the Bible in, in the the language of the people of Burma. If you know anything about Bible translation, over time people will come back and they'll try and do a better translation because they kind of see some flaws in the original, so they try to bring on a new one. People have come multiple times to try and have a new translation of the Bible, but Judson's was so good, the believers in Burma today still use his translation of the Bible. There is still a lineage of believers that are connected directly back to the work of Judson in the 1800s. In fact, one of the greatest joys of my life was there was a brother in our church in Southeast Asia where we served who was born in Burma and his family had direct connection back to Judson. What a legacy of faith. What a legacy of faithfulness. What a legacy that Judson 
left behind that even today his Bible is still used to reach people with the gospel in Burma. Now, we will not all have this type of Judson legacy left behind. Maybe you will. But the question still remains before us today, who are we investing in for eternity? Who is our crown of boasting? And so I, I think of parents that your primary charge in considering the investment in eternity is in your family and your children. Your son might have the best swing in all of the baseball league that he plays in, and, and you might have invested a lot of money into that great swing, and yet, for what? What will it profit your son if he has the greatest baseball swing the world has ever known and forfeits his soul? Who are we investing in in eternity? Families, I want to encourage you, if you're not already doing this, to be about some of these simple things during your week. So we think about investing in eternity in our families. If you're not already doing these things, or maybe you are, I want to encourage you to do them more and more. But take time as best as you can, everyday parents, to read the Word of God with your family. Take time even to take it a step further and memorize Scripture together with your family. Take time each and every day as best as you can to pray together as a family. Take time each and every day as best as you can to sing songs of praise to God as a family. And as you do that, I want you to watch and see how the perspective of your family changes. What are we investing in? The third and final thing that we see here as we consider this bond that the church has is that the church in Thessalonica, along with Paul and Silas and Timothy, that they shared in suffering together. A really important detail of the story here is in uh, verse 6 where Paul and his desire to go to them and this hindrance that Satan has, has, has caused sends Timothy to them. And this part of the, of the letter looks less like an epistle and more like a narrative as this story unfolds. And you can imagine Timothy going to them and the encouragement that he sees and, and experiences it as he sees there, as it, as it says in verse 6, that, that when he goes, that it has brought forth to us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. And so Timothy goes to the church in Thessalonica. He returns to Paul and he gives this report of good news that they are growing and steadfast in the faith, but also that the feelings are mutual. Not only does Paul long to see them, but they long also to see Paul, and so this idea of we could bear it no longer that Paul says twice here, he sends Timothy and he gets this report, and in the midst of all of this, it's summed up in this, that they suffered well. The persecution that began there in Thessalonica when Paul and Silas came to them has continued, and, and we feel the weight of this in verses 3 and 4 where 
The second part of verse 3, it says, For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Destined for what? For, for persecution, for suffering. Verse 4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And in the midst of suffering and persecution and affliction, what is Paul's response? He's encouraged Think about that for a moment. You get report from family who lives in another state of just the trials that they're going through, and your initial response is, is probably not to be encouraged. But Paul is encouraged. Look what he says there in verse 7. He says, We have been what? Comforted about you through your faith. Maybe a better translation there would be to say this. For this reason, we were comforted. Out of this report that comes from Timothy, we are encouraged in the faith. We share in suffering together. Not only does he seek to comfort them. So look back at verse 2 of chapter 3. It says there, he came to them to establish and exhort. That word means to comfort. And it's the same exact word that's used in verse 7 when he says, we have been comforted. So not only does Paul have a desire to comfort the church, but they in return have been a comfort to him in the midst of much affliction. In all our distress and affliction, Paul says, we have not suffered alone. We have been encouraged through your faith and steadfastness in the gospel. So look there at verse 8. This is helpful for us. Verse 8, those first few words there, he says, For now we live. The words we live there are not, should not be taken in a, in a salvific type of way. He's not talking about here the life that we have in salvation. Rather, he's speaking metaphorically of, of a removal of anxiety. What do I mean by that? Let's say your child has just turned 16, they just got their driver's license, and they're going out on their first time alone to a friend's house. And the anxiety that you have that whole time that you know that they're traveling to the friend's house, and they call and say, Mom and Dad, I made it to my friend's house. What happens in that moment? You can go on living, right? For the last 30 minutes, your, your day stopped, but in that moment, okay. I can go on living. That's what Paul is communicating here. This is simply used by Paul to, again, express his deep love and affection for them. And so you see what it goes on to say there in verse 8. If you are standing fast in the faith, probably a better translation here would be if you continue to stand firm in the faith. Paul puts a condition on this. So in other words, he hasn't just stopped considering them and having compassion for them and having this, this desire to, to grow in the gospel and this, this anxiety, this fear for their well-being. It's paused for a moment, but he will continue to show concern for, his, for the church there in Thessalonica. So again, your child arrives at the friend's house. That, that relief from the anxiety only lasts for a moment because guess what? They got to turn around and come home at some point. Paul doesn't stop caring for the church in Thessalonica, but he's relieved. And notice what he says there in verse 9. Overwhelmed with thankfulness for what Christ has done in their midst. Look there at verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? 
for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? This is a rhetorical question. In other words, Paul is saying to them, there, there, is no, there, there are no words that we could express in regards to our thankfulness and the joy that we feel for what God has done in your midst, for all the joy we feel for you, Paul says. This affection stirs up in him, this thankfulness and joy because of what God is doing in and amongst his people, the church, growing them, even in the midst of great suffering and affliction. I mentioned persecution earlier. And persecution is a hard thing to apply in an American context because we just, as a church as a whole in American history, have not faced much persecution. And I would say, first and foremost, that's a blessing. God has allowed us as the church in the freedoms that we have to grow in our knowledge of the word and and we see the outsourcing of theology and doctrine and, and seminaries and training and missionaries to the ends of the earth and so the lack of persecution that we face has most certainly been a blessing from the Lord and yet how do we apply persecution to our our lives in the midst of that I'm not a prophet Is there more persecution coming in our day? I think potentially so. I think we already see that in other parts of the world. But but how do we apply this in these moments? Suffering doesn't just come through persecution. Each and every one of us faces suffering. If you've never experienced great suffering in this life, just wait. Some of you are here this morning bearing the load of great suffering. And the application for us from the the text is to be comforted corporately as the church. As we suffer, we share in that together as the body of Christ. What a joy, what a privilege. And so the challenge to each of us, myself included, is when we see brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through seasons of suffering, that we would come alongside them and love them and show compassion to them well. In this bond that we share under the banner of the gospel. And so I want to close just with this. As we consider the joyous bond of Christian fellowship, do you know of this joyous bond? Are you a part of the family of God? Are you a part of the kingdom of God? Do you know the joy and the hope that comes from the gospel alone? This this truth that we celebrate in this place every single week that God himself came near to us in a form of a man and lived a sinless life, and died on a cross in our place, and rose from the grave. And when we believe in Him, we find life eternal. And when we come to faith in Christ, we are gathered together as the sheep, as Christ's sheep in His church throughout the world but specifically in a local place. And as we gather in this place, we learn to suffer well together. 
We learn to grow in faith together. We learn to have Christ-like affection for one another. May that be said of each of us and as a church. Let's pray.